Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be exploring Buddhist chanting. If you've ever wondered what Buddhist chanting is, the benefits of Buddhist chanting, and how to actually do Buddhist chanting, this is the perfect class for you because it's part one of a four-part series where I'll be introducing you to Buddhist chanting and helping you to develop a practice which will help you along this path to enlightenment as you're training the mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So I'm really pleased that you decided to join today because you're going to get a chance to more deeply understand what is Buddhist chanting and actually learn today how to do Buddhist chanting. So to start us off, let's just talk about what Buddhist chanting is. There's three main traditions of Buddhism that exist in the world today with a lot of different offshoots and sects of all of these three main traditions. The tradition that we practice is called Theravada Buddhism. Theravada means teachings of the elders. This is considered to be the tradition of Buddhist teachings that existed closest to the lifetime of Gautama Buddha because when he taught during his lifetime nothing was written down but then shortly thereafter they started writing things down and ensuring that they captured his teachings in writing. They captured this in the Pali Canon. The Pali Canon is the source text of Gautama Buddha's teachings and in this source text they use this Pali language, which is no longer a spoken language today, but it's become a language that we actually chant during our chanting in our various uh, settings that we do chanting in this tradition. In the other traditions like Mahayana and Vajrayana Buddhism, they do chanting as well, but they will do chanting in their local language. So where Theravada Buddhism exists primarily in Thailand, Sri Lanka, Miramar, Laos, Cambodia, kind of southern Vietnam. These are kind of like the focal points or the host areas of Theravada Buddhism. But in reality, Theravada Buddhism is spread all throughout the world. But in all of these various places, either in these host countries or throughout the world, where they're practicing Theravada Buddhism, if they're doing chanting, they're going to be doing it in the Pali language. And of course, because of impermanence, there's a little bit of a dialect difference here and there in the various regions of the world. But all in all, if various practitioners get together in the same 
tradition of Theravada Buddhist teachings, we all chant from the same source, which is the Pali language. And this is one of the really nice things about learning chanting is you can actually get together with other practitioners and other venues, places that you've never gone before, and everyone's basically chanting the same chants in the same language. With Mahayana Buddhism really being hosted in China, they tend to chant in the Chinese language. And then the Tibetan Buddhism with all the different offshoots and all the different offshoots of Mahayana Buddhism, they will chant in whatever localized language that exists. So if you practice Mahayana Buddhism or Vajrayana Buddhism, there isn't kind of a unified chanting across the entire tradition like there is in Theravada Buddhism. So Buddhist chanting has been used for countless centuries to memorize the teachings and pass them down from one generation to the next. And now that we're here, we still use chanting, but very few people understand the Pali language. So we're not really using it in order to recite the teachings in a way that people would understand, but there's actually other benefits associated with the chanting where in the past it was done as a way to recite the teachings and people would learn the teachings as they were being recited and there were certain benefits associated with learning the teachings in Pali language. But nowadays the teachings have moved into the English language or Thai language or other languages, but we still chant in Pali. And the way that I've developed a chanting practice and the benefits that I've seen are based on the things that I'm going to share with you today. When Gautama Buddha taught meditation and he described what you should do in order to meditate, he talked about a number of different things in terms of, you know, setting up the body and erecting the spine and all these other things. And one of the things that he says as part of preparing for meditation is that we should set up mindfulness in front of us. And setting up mindfulness in front of you is essentially becoming aware of the mind as you start entering into meditation. Don't just kind of come in and plop down and start meditating, but set up mindfulness in front of you. Become aware of those four foundations of mindfulness that we've taught in some other classes. Primarily, the way that I teach mindfulness and describe it is just awareness of mind. So we can go with that definition for today. So in entering into meditation, you would need to develop this awareness of mind. And chanting helps you to do that, setting up mindfulness in front of you as you kind of use it as a buffer to kind of ease the mind from whatever you're doing into meditation. And chanting is kind of like that buffer to kind of ease the mind into meditation, helping you to start becoming aware of the mind. It also helps you to develop concentration and memory because in order to progress on this path, you would need to develop concentration or singleness of mind, being able to focus on one thing and having this concentration. And as you progress on this path and you clear out the pollution of these taints or these fetters, these three unwholesome roots of craving, anger, and ignorance, the mind starts to become more concentrated, more focused. You start gaining clarity of mind. Well, what chanting does by developing a practice of chanting is you need to memorize the chants as you progress. And it takes usually many weeks or many months to be able to do that. And the mind is kind of like every other 
muscle, if you want to think about the mind as a muscle, even though the mind is intangible or non-physical, that if you don't ever exercise it, then it's hard for it to develop its abilities. So by practicing chanting, you're actually practicing the ability to memorize these chants and focus on them for each session prior to meditation and after meditation in order to develop this concentration. So by you developing a chanting practice, it will help you to develop this awareness of mind, this concentration, and this memory because you'll be exercising the mind before meditation and after meditation to ensure that you're building these aspects of the mind or these qualities of mind. As you're chanting, there's a certain amount of awareness of breath that you need to have. Chanting in some regards, it's not singing, but it has a certain flavor like a vocalist who might actually have learned singing. And anybody who does any kind of professional singing or even amateur singing, they will tell you that it's all about breath control and being able to be aware of the breath and to be able to hit the certain notes that you hit. Well, with chanting, it's the same thing, is that in order to chant and develop a practice, you really have to have awareness of breath. So not only do you need to have awareness of mind, and that gets developed as part of your chanting practice, but you develop your awareness of breath, which are the two things that you're mainly working with when you get into meditation. So to kind of dust off the cobwebs and kind of use this to ease into meditation can be really helpful so that once you're in meditation, you've already got some awareness of mind and awareness of the breath before you ever end up in meditation. And it provides this little buffer that I'm talking about. Or in other words, it kind of slowly helps to relax and ease the mind into meditation rather than just plopping down and actually trying to meditate going from whatever it is that you were doing to boom, now I'm meditating. It's nice to have this little buffer to kind of relax the mind and ease it into meditation. Early in your meditation practice, you may find it a bit challenging to see that there's actually progress being made, particularly if you are just feel like you're hitting a brick wall every time you start to meditate. It can feel like there's just a lot of chatter, a lot of busyness, and you might have difficulty seeing the improvements that you're making in your meditation practice. When you're learning chanting alongside of your meditation, you're going to notice that your memory is going to get better and better because you're going to be memorizing the chants and you're going to see that improvement because you're going to be able to actually chant without the printed version of the chants. You're going to see that the audio of your chanting is going to gradually improve as you practice each session. So chanting can be a nice audible indication that your practice is improving. You can see each session from session to session that, whoa, I'm kind of getting these chants. It's kind of working. I am remembering them. I'm starting to get more proficient at them and they're sounding better. And it's actually kind of enjoyable to build this practice. Another thing that the chanting does is if you do chanting at the beginning and at the end, there's oftentimes an audible difference between the chanting at the beginning of your meditation and at the end. So it can be an indication that the meditation that you're doing is actually working. So going into meditation, your chanting might be just a little bit rougher, a little bit 
more haphazard, maybe not as concise in the way that you deliver the chanting, then you meditate for 20, 30, 40, 50 minutes, an hour, and then you chant at the end, and you'll notice the subtle difference in the way that the chanting is done at the end of your meditation because the condition of the mind has improved during the actual meditation itself. So from the beginning chant that you do to the ending chant that you do, there's going to be these subtle changes that you hear. And it's a nice audible indication that your meditation practice is improving. And part of developing on this path to enlightenment is to develop respect and gratitude. You know, this doesn't show up as one of the major steps on the Eightfold Path. It doesn't even show up in the Brahma Viharas necessarily, unless you include that as part of loving kindness or some of the other Brahma Viharas. But having respect for all people and having gratitude for all people is really, really important. One of the things that we tend to be taught in our culture as we grow up is that you only respect people who respect you. Well, that requires you to judge other people and it means you're holding back your respect and you have to judge whether or not this person has earned your respect or not before you actually choose to respect them. What an enlightened being is going to do is they're going to respect all people. They're going to have politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respect for all beings. And that goes for everybody. And they would never intentionally disrespect anybody that comes along in their journey on this path. So developing respect and gratitude for all people is really important. And developing a chanting practice can be a way for you to develop respect and gratitude for the elders. And what I mean by the elders is from the time of Gautama Buddha's lifetime until now, there's been 2,500 years of people passing the teachings down from one generation to the next. And the reason why you're receiving these teachings right now, today, or any other time is that people took time, effort, energy, and resources to preserve these teachings from the lifetime of the Buddha all the way till now. This long chain of people going way back all the way to the Buddha's lifetime. Well, we are just one link in that chain that we are now you know, learning the teachings, developing our practice, and then ultimately we will share these teachings with others and these teachings will move more and more into the world. So chanting can be a way of having respect and gratitude for the elders because this language of Pali was captured and the teachings were written down in the Pali text and that's where we source our teachings back to. And all these people who passed the teachings down from one generation to the next, they didn't do it for fame or fortune or notoriety. There isn't a centralized organization that's really codified and collected and distributed the teachings. It's just been one person after another after another who's chosen that, aha, I have something that I can add here to help the community and share these teachings more widely. And when people saw ways that they can contribute, they just chose to do it. So for example, a lot of you guys are studying these Buddha Wajana books and the bhikkhus or the ordained practitioners who have provided these translations in these books nobody told them to translate these there was no centralized organization that mandated that they did it 
they actually went out on their own, took a lot of time, effort, and energy to learn the Pali language, which is a very challenging language to understand. And when they gained a certain level of proficiency, they decided to dedicate a significant portion of their life to translating these teachings into English. And one of the primary translators of these books, Bhikkhu Bodhi, he took about 27 years to translate the Pali Canon into English, which is an enormous amount of time, effort, and energy. So I have a lot of respect and gratitude for Bhikkhu Bodhi, for Bhikkhu Nanamoli, for all the other household practitioners and ordained practitioners, males and females, all throughout the years that have passed down these teachings to the point where now we have them available to us today in order to improve the condition of our mind and improve the condition of our life. So developing a chanting practice can be a way of kind of respect and gratitude to the elders, including Gautama Buddha himself, because you'll see the chants that I'm going to share with you are all about respect and gratitude to Gautama Buddha. Because in order to attain enlightenment, you guys already know as being part of this path, it's not easy. Even when you have a teacher to help you, it's not easy. It's not difficult. We kind of make it more difficult sometimes than it needs to be, but it's not easy. So Gautama Buddha, being a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha, he did all that work on his own for his journey of six years to attain enlightenment. And it's a real struggle to attain enlightenment on your own because you have nobody to turn to for guidance or support. And you've got to push through a lot of problems that the mind encounters. So his six-year journey was not an easy one, but through his hard work, his dedication, and his diligence, he then broke through to enlightenment and then spent 45 years, the remaining time of his life, to share these teachings into the world in a way that could be shared and passed down from one generation to the next so that more and more and more and more people could attain enlightenment during his life and after his life. So he did an enormous thing for all of us to be able to go through that six-year journey and then spend 45 years just solely dedicated to sharing these teachings into the world not interested in fame or fortune or notoriety or anything like that, but just sharing teachings that would help humanity. And we owe him a real big debt of gratitude and chanting can be one way for you to develop and cultivate that respect and gratitude. There's other benefits that you might observe along the way, but these are some of the primary benefits that I've noticed in terms of developing a chanting practice. But what's really important that I also share is not only the benefits of chanting, but what chanting isn't. That's really important. I tend to share certain topics like meditation and other things, and I tell you what it is, but then I also share with you what it isn't. What chanting isn't is it's not a prayer. It's not a way to invoke some spiritual entity to do something beneficial on our behalf. Everything in this practice is all about you taking responsibility for the condition of the mind, you learning the teachings, reflecting on those, practicing them to develop wisdom. There's no way to invoke any spiritual entity to come and do something on your behalf because everything that happens in your life is based on your own decisions. And it's your own decisions that lead to better and better results. So having a really clear, concentrated 
focused mind full of wisdom is going to help you make more and more wholesome decisions in the world. There is no magical or mystical benefits associated with chanting. You'll hear some people teach that through chanting a particular aspect of words, you will get a longer life or your boyfriend or girlfriend will come back to you or you will get richer or more wealthy. People will say that if you chant this particular chant, it will eliminate unwholesome gamma. People say if you chant this particular chant, you know, every day in a certain iteration that you'll somehow miraculously get to enlightenment and it will just poof and you will get to enlightenment. And you'll hear other variations of all these different mystical, magical benefits associated with chanting. This isn't how chanting works at all. Because if you've been learning in this program for even a couple of weeks or even just last week, if you started just last week, then you know that what this path is all about is about training the mind to eliminate pollution of the mind or defilements or taints in order to clear out the unwholesomeness and purify this mind to attain this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy And the only way that you do that is through training the mind. There's no mystical or magical way to accomplish any kind of results through rites, rituals, ceremonies, or worship. So while you'll see other people in the world discussing how chanting has certain mystical and magical benefits, I'm sharing that that's not the case at all. That instead, the way that you can use chanting as as a way to develop your mindfulness or awareness of mind, your concentration, your memory, gain this awareness of breath, ease the mind into meditation, give you this audible indication that your practice is improving, develop this respect and gratitude in the mind for elders and Gautama Buddha, and all of these things combined will help you along the path, and it will help you gain more benefit out of your meditation session. So rather than just plopping down into meditation, you're actually going to ease the mind into meditation with some chanting, which will help you get more benefit out of the meditation session itself. And that's how you gain benefit out of the actual chanting. So I felt it was important to share this with you before I actually teach you the chants themselves. I'll teach you the Pali chants and the English translations, but before I do that, I would like to pause and see if you guys have any questions on the benefits associated with chanting as I see them. If you have questions, you can put those into the comment section of Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and the moderators will see those and get your questions asked. If you're in Zoom, you can raise your hand electronically and our moderators will call on you so that you can ask any question or follow-up questions that you have. So with that, I'll just open things up for any questions that you guys might have. All right, David, as we look at the benefits of chanting, I was wondering, if we're not in a position to chant verbally, can we still see such benefits by chanting mentally, so to say? Yeah, this is really helpful because as James is wisely pointing out, you're not going to permanently be in a situation where you can vocally say the chants. You might live in a confined area where you would be disturbing others perhaps like me i used to fly back and forth between america and thailand on a 24-hour flight so i wasn't able to chant on the flight 
or all these other different places where you might choose to actually meditate, but it's not conducive to chanting. So you can just kind of mouth the chants or do the chants in the mind, and it can really help to reinforce the memory. It can help reinforce awareness of mind and concentration. You're still going to get some of these benefits where you're setting up mindfulness in front of you. You're easing the mind into meditation. You're not getting the audible sound, but that's okay because you'll probably only find yourself in that situation occasionally. But yes, if you mouth these or just kind of say them quietly in the mind, it can also be beneficial for the mind as well. Thanks, David. That's all we have for now. Okay. So let's look at the actual chants that I'll I'll share with you. There's three main chants that I share as part of a chanting practice. And these are three very common chants that you will see throughout the Theravada Buddhist community. And if you learn these, you'll be able to then chant with other practitioners. You can go to any Theravada Buddhist temple or monastery or event and you'll see people chanting these and you can just chant right along with them. And if you guys ever happen to come here to Thailand and have classes with me in person, I actually start all the classes with this chanting. And we start the class with the chanting and then we do our meditation, we finish with a chant and then I do the talks and that's how we actually start and end here in our in-person classes here in Chiang Mai. So when we all get together and chant, it really harmonizes. And a lot of these temples are built with a really great acoustics. So the sound really blends together. So you get 10, 20, 100, 300 people, a couple thousand people together, all chanting the same chant. And wow, it's really powerful and it's quite beautiful. So learning this can be really enjoyable and trying to pronounce the syllables can be quite challenging but the more time and effort you apply to it you can progress in your practice what i'm going to do is i'll chant the actual chant in pali first let you guys hear it with me chanting it then i'll go back and i will explain the english translation for you then as a class we will chant it together you know, very slowly and kind of helping you along to actually chant it. So here's how this first one sounds when you're chanting it. Okay, this first one we refer to as the triple gem or the triple jewel. 
Whenever you see three in the Buddhist tradition, it's typically referencing the triple gem or the triple jewel. What the triple gem or triple jewel is, is the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. That's the Pali words. But saying that in English, it's the Buddha, the fully perfectly enlightened one, the teacher, the master teacher, his teachings, and the community of practitioners, both ordained and household practitioners. This community actually breaks down into individual segments of the ordained males, the ordained females, and you know everybody together. There's kind of segments of it, but when you're generally referring to the Sangha, you're referring to the community of practitioners more generally. And the reason why these three are really important is that you wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment without these three. You would need to have confidence in the Buddha because if you didn't think that this man was actually enlightened and his teachings were worthwhile to actually be learned, then why would you ever actually learn his teachings? So there needs to be developed a certain amount of confidence that as you learn his teachings that you start to understand that yes, this man was fully perfectly enlightened and his teachings really do work. Ultimately, removing any kind of doubt that you would have about his enlightenment. And during his lifetime, if you were studying with him directly or you weren't studying with him, but you were thinking about studying with him, you would need to have confidence that this teacher, Siddhartha Gautama, who ultimately becomes known as Master Teacher Gautama or Aesthetic Gautama, and then ultimately upon his death, more and more people refer to him as the Buddha or Gautama Buddha and other versions of that as well. So confidence in the Buddha is very important on the path to enlightenment. And then you would need to have access to his teachings, which is the second part of the triple gem, because without having access to his actual teachings, you wouldn't be able to learn them and reflect on them and practice them. So you'd never be able to attain enlightenment without that one either. And then the third one is the community, the practitioners that he left behind and has been passed down through many generations that you would need to have access to the community, like somebody like me and others. And now we're building our own community of lots of practitioners who are now starting to learn and practice and understand these teachings. And we can talk with each other. We can discuss them. We can help each other, encourage each other, motivate each other, discuss and help clarify the teachings with each other so they're more clear in each other's mind and the community comes together and practices the teachings so that as we're practicing we can observe oh wow you know james does a really great job of being very polite and kind and friendly in his moderation and Manal and Basam are very respectful and polite as they take each one of your questions and they're very uh, conducive to being open to accepting your questions and ensuring that your questions get asked and answered and so forth. And everybody's practicing the teachings in a very good way. And therefore, we all are kind of role models for each other of how to practice these teachings in a very good way. And as we come together, we're wholesome friends and companions for each other to support and uh, help each other along this path. So these three aspects or these, this triple gem or this triple jewel is paramount in order to attain enlightenment. If you only had confidence in the Buddha, but you didn't have access to his teachings and you weren't part of a community, you wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment. 
or if you only had access to his teachings, you wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment because you don't have the confidence in the Buddha and you don't have access to a community. Or if you were just part of the community and you didn't have access to the teachings and you didn't have confidence in the Buddha, you wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment with just one or even two of these things. You would need all three in order to attain enlightenment. So that's why we tend to start each one of our events in the Theravada tradition with this particular chant. This is usually going to lead off every event in the Theravada tradition because it's so important in order to attain enlightenment, you need all three. The translations here is the perfectly enlightened one is worthy and rightly self-awakened. That's one of the criteria that makes a Buddha a Buddha is that they're independently awakened. They don't have any teachers or guides that are helping them on their path. They discover these teachings on their own and they progress through awakening of the mind to complete enlightenment completely by themselves. And this is why we call them fully perfectly enlightened or perfectly enlightened because their knowledge, their wisdom, their practice isn't tainted or influenced by any outside source. So while the Buddha went and spent time with two teachers prior to going out on his own, those teachers' teachings didn't lead to enlightenment. And that's why he had to go out on his own and he went out into the forest and eventually over an additional four years with the first two years, an additional four, he attained enlightenment on his own. And that's one of the first criteria that makes a Buddha a Buddha. And since he wasn't influenced by other teachers, he was perfectly enlightened and fully enlightened because he understood through his own goals, his own journey, uh, his own pursuit, what it took to get to enlightenment. And this is why a Buddha's wisdom is so profound and so deep because they discovered it on their own. It's kind of like if you were the inventor of some new technology, you would understand that new technology inside, outside, backwards and forwards. But then as it's taught from one person to the next, to the next, to the next, it kind of gets a little bit tainted so that over time, the teachings would be influenced by various people, by impermanence would affect them. And this is why we don't see massive numbers of enlightened people in the world, because there's been so much impermanence that has affected the teachings. But during his lifetime, he attained enlightenment by himself, which is the first criteria to be a Buddha. The second criteria is that through his independently discovered teachings, during 45 years of teaching, countless other people attained enlightenment during his lifetime. And then the third criteria is that upon his death, he left the teachings in a condition that countless more people could attain enlightenment after his death. There's other criteria as well, but these are the three primary criteria that make a Buddha a Buddha. They attain enlightenment on their own. They share the teachings that they discovered through their lifetime of teaching, through countless other people attaining enlightenment. And then upon their death, they leave the teachings in a condition that countless more people can attain enlightenment after their death. And this is how we know that Gautama Buddha was in fact a Buddha, because here we are 2,500 years later, and people are still attaining enlightenment through his teachings that he left over 2,500 years ago. Then the second one, the second part of this first verse is, I bow down before the awakened, 
perfectly enlightened one. One of the things that people will do during a event of Theravada Buddhist event is that after they do this first chant, they will bow down to the ground as a way of showing respect or gratitude to the Buddha. When I teach like this in a seated position, I tend to just put my hands up to my forehead. But other times, if you're on the ground or you're sitting on the ground, people will prostrate down to the ground. And there's a particular way that people do that. In Thai, we call it a clop or people might call it a prostration or a bow. This isn't something that the Buddha taught people to do. He didn't teach people to bow down to him, right? Because that would be like ego or uh, conceit, some arrogance. But because of his wisdom, because of people's admiration and respect for him during his lifetime, people did actually bow down and place their head on the ground either at his feet or if they were a little bit away from him, you know, on the ground gesturing towards him. So that's why you see bowing in Buddhist teachings and Buddhist communities, because during the lifetime of the Buddha, people did bow. And a lot of people see this as a way of you emptying out your ego, your conceit, your arrogance. And it really is a good way for you to empty that out. If you're around someone who you really respect or something or like your parents or your grandparents if they're sitting on a sofa for example and you sat on the floor it would help you to be very humble to be down on the floor and if you decide to take on this practice you can and it's something that you'll see people will often bow to ordained practitioners or grandparents or parents here in the thai culture it's something that they do the second phrase is the Dhamma is well expounded by the perfectly enlightened one. Remember, the Dhamma are his teachings. So the teachings are well expounded by the perfectly enlightened one. So they're well explained. He takes his time. He's very clear, very concise, very almost methodical in the way that he explains his teachings very clearly. Right? He's not just rushing through it. He's not just kind of giving you a little bit of detail and kind of leaving out a lot of other stuff. He's fully explaining it very, very well how to get to enlightenment because he's got this deep wisdom that he's able to take his time and just really fully explain the teachings that it requires to get to enlightenment. And then that last part of that second phrase is, I pay respect to the Dhamma, to his teachings. And oftentimes people will bow on this one as well. And you'll see me put my hands up to my forehead since I'm sitting in front of a camera. The third phrase here is the Sangha or the community of the perfectly enlightened ones, disciples, has practiced well. I pay respect to the Sangha or the community. What this is saying is the people who are learning and practicing his teachings, the community, they're practicing very well. You can add in there that they're polite, kind, friendly, respectful. They're really practicing well because during the lifetime of the Buddha, remember, there was many different camps, many different groups of people that were practicing. And they had various teachings that were being shared by the main master teacher. And here people are acknowledging that it's the practitioners of the Buddha who are practicing very well. They're very humble. They're very respectful. 
They're practicing right view, right intention, right speech, right action. And you can see that they're very kind and cordial amongst other people. They're practicing very well. So these are the three statements that we do for this triple gem or triple jewel. And as you're chanting these three individual chants, there tends to be a place where it's a good idea to take a breath because you're not going to be able to take one deep breath and then chant all the way through. And remember, part of the benefit of chanting is that you are taking a breath in order to become aware of the breath. So the way that I've broken down the chant is each line at the end of each line, that's the point where it's kind of wise to take a breath. So this first line where it's Arahang Samma Samputo Pakawa That's a good place to take a breath. Putang Mahakawanang Apiwateami And then you see that period, that's a place to take a breath and get ready for the next phrase. Sawakato Bhagavata Dhammo. Take a breath there. Dhamang Namasami. And then you see that period. So we're going to take a breath there. And now there's this last line. Take a nice deep breath here when we actually practice. Supatipano Mahakavato Sawakasanko. Take a nice breath. Sankhang Namami. And then we'll move on to the next chant after that. But let's practice this one together where I will do this once together and I will cue the breath on the first time through. And then the second time through, I'll let you do it yourself without cueing the breath. And then the third time through, we'll do it again without cueing the breath. So we'll actually do the whole chant from beginning to end three times. The first time cueing the breath, and then the last two without cueing the breath. So what you would like to do is get whatever position you would normally meditate in, if that's seated on the floor or seated in a chair or wherever you are, and do the same thing. Make your lower body comfortable. Get that spine erect. But instead of putting your hands in your lap like you might have been doing so far as I've been teaching, bring your hands together palm to palm at your sternum. It doesn't have to be real tight, just kind of real soft here and just bring your palm to palm. And now, take a nice deep breath, inhale nice and easy through the mouth. And now let's chant. Breath. Hotang Mahakavanang Apiwatiami. Take a breath as you bring your hands up to your forehead. Sawakato Mahakavatamo. Nice breath. Damang Namasami. Hands up with a breath. 
सुपतिपनोमको सवको and then a final bring your hands up to your forehead okay so now let's go through this two more times and you put your hands up and breathe on your own because now you know where to breathe so take a nice deep breath and we'll chant together So it's really common and uh, as you're learning chanting and even in chanting events, everybody give each other a round of applause. Yay. <laughs> right? That's just completely fine. No ego, no arrogance. Just yay. Okay. We did a good job. Okay. Before we move off this chant, I'm going to give you guys a chance to ask questions, but I would like to share something with you guys. If you're going to be practicing these, you've got a couple places where you can access them. In the book, Developing a Life Practice, if you either have the printed version or the PDF version, which you can download for free, in chapter 11, this chants are in text because you're going to need them in text version. So you can get them there. In the Facebook group, under the file section, there's a one-page cheat sheet, which is just a front and a back that you can print and actually have a cheat sheet. And I actually laminate those for here in Thailand the classes that I teach, I will hand them out as a laminated version, and then we all chant from those front and back. The other thing you can do is you can also 
screenshot this if you're watching this on zoom or you're watching it on facebook youtube or any of the other places you can just take a screenshot and you've got it right here in textual format now in terms of hearing it because it's good to hear it while you're actually chanting there's a couple of places on the podcast and in youtube where i've got these chants that i've done the audio there's a couple of places where it's just me doing chanting and only chanting and you can be playing it in your ear while you're actually chanting or playing it on a speaker because it kind of helps to hear somebody else chanting it while you're practicing it and while you're chanting it. Also, if you've accessed the audiobook either on the podcast or the YouTube channel or on Amazon, they have the audiobook there too. I've chanted on the audiobook as well and there's plenty of these videos where I've been doing chanting. So you can access the audio and have the printed version as well so that you can be following along and developing your practice, looking at the text and hearing me chant at the same time, doing this on your own time as part of your practice. Because each week on Wednesday, we'll get back together and reconvene and you can see how you've been progressing and ask any questions that you have based on the practice that you're developing over the coming week. So let me see if you guys have any questions on this chant before we move into the next one. We have a question from Alex on YouTube. He's asking, do we need to practice the chanting along with the path to enlightenment or would the meditation be enough? Chanting is not a required aspect of attaining enlightenment. It's not something that everyone would need to do. The path itself doesn't include chanting as part of it. But if you would like to use it to accomplish those benefits that I talked about in terms of building awareness of mind and setting up mindfulness, concentration, memory, and all those other things that I talked about at the beginning of the class, that's what helps you to attain enlightenment is developing those benefits. And chanting can be a mechanism or a practice to help you develop those, but you can also develop them other ways as well. So it's not absolutely required that you do chanting as part of attaining enlightenment, but it is a practice that can help you if you choose to do it. What I tend to suggest people to do is that learn chanting, do it for a few weeks, you know, two, three, four, five weeks, see how you feel about chanting, see if it's something that you enjoy doing. And if you enjoy it, keep with it and keep developing it. But if you're just like, eh, I don't really like all this chanting stuff. I, I did it for a few weeks and it just doesn't really strike a chord with me then you can leave this off and you don't have to actually practice chanting as part of your path to enlightenment. But you still need to accomplish all those other goals that I mentioned about setting up mindfulness in front of you, developing your concentration, your memory, and all those other aspects as well. But there's other ways to do that. You know, some people who are moving from maybe Christianity or Muslim teachings into Buddhism, they might do some prayer before they actually meditate. Or some people might choose to do a little bit of yoga before they meditate or other things like this. And whatever you do, just be sure that you ease the mind into meditation. You don't just kind of plop down and try to you know, meditate, that you kind of have a way to kind of bring the mind into a deeper meditation by setting up mindfulness and easing the mind into meditation. Okay, David, we have a few questions on Zoom, so let's go to Basim now. Okay. Okay, yeah, thanks, James. A, a question from Holly. She says, since Buddhism is not a religion, why are the words bow down included, which may suggest worship to some people? And she continues saying, 
maybe this is why some people think Buddhism is a religion. Yeah, the way that people use bowing in Buddhist traditions is as a way of respect and gratitude and appreciation, not as a way of worshiping the individual. And as I mentioned, or I don't know if I mentioned this or not, but the Buddha didn't teach these chants necessarily. As far as I know, these are chants that were created after his death, that during his lifetime they chanted, but they chanted his teachings and they were reciting his teachings in Pali. And it wasn't until after he died that people put together these chants for him. Like for this one, it's about him, his teachings, and the community. But bowing is a way of showing respect, showing gratitude, showing appreciation. And people oftentimes associate it with being humble and helping you to practice emptying the ego because it can help you to empty the ego, but not as a way of worshiping any particular person. A question from Nick. Teacher David, out of curiosity, what are the other criteria beside the main three that make a Buddha a Buddha? I have heard other criteria a few times. Yeah, I put those in the book, or I put some of them in the book. One thing about a Buddha, in addition to the three that I talked about, is, and also the fourth one, which is deep, profound wisdom of the path, is they're going to have a very profound uh, memory. They're going to be able to remember many, many things about their current life and their past lives as well. So that's a unique criteria that a Buddha will have. The average person will have a memory much like a hard drive, that things get deleted and overwritten. There's only a certain amount of capacity that a average person would have. And as you progress in life, your memory gets overwritten. So like all of you guys probably have very little memory about your childhood, for example. There might just be kind of spotted residual memories of your childhood, or even over the last 10 or 15 years, you might just have kind of a spotted memory where a Buddha is going to have a very deep, profound, crisp memory about what they've encountered during this life and previous lives as well. That's another really main criteria of a Buddha that makes a Buddha a Buddha. And I've put some others in the book as well. But this particular aspect of the teachings of knowing what a Buddha is or how to identify a Buddha, I feel isn't really important for each of you because for sure you guys aren't Buddhas. You can be an enlightened being, you can attain enlightenment, but you wouldn't be a Buddha once you actually attain enlightenment because a Buddha doesn't want to be a Buddha. They don't aspire to be a Buddha. Nobody sets off out of their house, wakes up in the morning and says, all right, today I'm going to embark on this journey to become a Buddha. Either the person is a Buddha or they're not. They're born as a human being. They don't know that they're actually a Buddha when they're born and they're going through life. They don't really discover that they're a Buddha until they actually get to a certain point in their life that they awaken on their own through their own self journey. And then they start to discover and become aware that they are a Buddha. And they essentially accept the responsibility that it's up to them now that they've discovered these teachings independently to share these teachings with the world because there is no other human being that is available or able or capable of sharing the teachings into the world the way that a Buddha would. A Buddha's wisdom is so deep and so profound that they essentially accept the responsibility 
of sharing the teachings into the world. They don't actually set off with an aspiration to become a Buddha, and they don't want to necessarily be a Buddha. There's lots of people that talk about Gautama Buddha that, you know, his real preference would have been to just be secluded and be by himself. But as part of him understanding that he was a Buddha and that during his lifetime there was no other human being on the face of the earth that really truly understood the path the way that he did, that he essentially accepted the responsibility that he found himself in the position of that he had discovered the teachings, that it was his responsibility to share these teachings into the world. So if you know how to identify a Buddha, that's great, but it's not going to necessarily help you attain enlightenment unless you are actually studying with an actual Buddha. But the important thing is, is for each of you to learn and practice the teachings and progress along this path so that you can attain enlightenment. Holy asks, is there ever a concern that chanting will turn into a ritual to be done before meditation? It's important that it doesn't become that. And that's why you learned about the 10 fetters first, so that you understand that rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship aren't part of the path to enlightenment. And that's also why I included in the benefits of chanting what chanting isn't. It's not a mystical, magical, you know, rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship that you're invoking some spiritual entity to come do something beneficial on your behalf. It's purely for those benefits that I talked about, which is to set up mindfulness, develop concentration, memory, ease the mind into meditation, and all those others that there is no right ritual or ceremony here. It's really purely for development of your own mind and ultimately to help you get the most benefit out of your meditation itself. Now in a community setting, it's kind of nice that I've observed how it brings the community together because when you've got 10, 20, 50, 100, 300 people, 1,000 people all chanting in harmony, it really kind of puts a smile on your face that, wow, like none of us know each other at all, basically, but we've just come together and produced this beautiful sounding chanting that really resonates. And if you're in Thailand and you happen to be walking around any of the temples or even kind of live nearby a temple in the morning and in the evenings, you'll hear the ordained practitioners and the household practitioners in some of the temples actually chanting together. And it resonates out through the temple grounds into the community. And it sounds very beautiful as that's being done. So it's kind of a nice way to bring the community together. So it's important that you always keep in mind that it's not a right ritual ceremony or worship. Thanks, teacher. No more questions for now. All right. So let's go on to the next chant, which is actually quite simple and very basic. This may be a chant that you choose to work on by itself first. When I first learned chanting, I just did this one chant only for many, many weeks and months to develop the ability to chant this first. And then I moved into the Arahang Sama Samputasa. But some people like to just learn them all at one time. But if you're going to break it down chant by chant, you might choose to learn this chant first because it's just one line and a lot of the syllables show up in some of the other chants. Here in Thailand, pretty much as soon as a child can start talking, they will actually start teaching them this particular chant because it's kind of a common one that people will learn. So let's learn this one the same way that I taught the other one, where I'll chant it first in Pali, 
then I'll explain the translation. Then we'll go through it together as a group and I'll help coach your breath and help you to actually chant it as well. This particular chant, you say the same line three times over and over. Okay, so it sounds like this. Nap more her sab hakawato Hara hato Nap more sab hakawato Hara hato And notice with this one, there's no bowing typically or no gesture with the hands if you're sitting in a chair. It's just the same phrase over and over and over again, three times. The translation of this one is somewhat similar to the last one, which is respect to the perfectly enlightened one, the worthy one, the rightly self-awakened one. Just kind of acknowledging that, yes, this master teacher was a Buddha. Okay, very simple chant here. There is a breath as you go here. There's a breath in the middle and then before you start the next phrase. So it's breath. And then you take a big breath getting ready for the next one, right? So let's do the same thing. Bring your palms together face to face at your sternum. Take a nice deep breath in. And now let's chant together. Breath. Breath. Nap more sab hakawato. Breath. Hara hato Breath. Nap more sab hakawato. Breath. Okay, so that was one time through. Now let's do this two more times. So essentially six more phrases without me cueing the breath. Okay, so same thing, palms together. Take a nice deep breath. Nap Hara hato sama samputasa. Nap more sab hakawato. Hara hato sama samputasa. Nap more sab hakawato. Hara hato sama samputasa. 
do it again. Napmor hasab hakawato Arahato samasamputasa Napmor hasab hakawato Arahato samasamputasa Okay, nice claps. Clap, 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 clap. All right. So you guys are learning now. Any questions on this chant? How we use it, where the breaths are, the flow of it, or anything like that? Seems we have no particular questions on this chant. Okay, pretty straightforward. Now let's go to the next one, which is a bit more challenging. And this one I kind of learned a bit later because it has a lot more syllables and it's a more involved chant. But if you've been chanting the other two and you get proficient at that one, this one becomes a lot easier. But for some people, they just learn all of them at one time and there's no harm in doing that, right? Kind of get over that shyness and just charge ahead and just continue forward. So same thing, let me chant it once, then we'll come back through, talk about the translations, then I'll share the breathing with you guys and we'll do it as a group, okay? Here we go. Iti piso mahakawa Arahansamasam hoto Vita charanang samhuno Sakato rokavitu Anutero purisa Damasati satatawa manusanam Puto bhagavati I usually do kind of a gesture there at the end, kind of finishing off, and then that's where you slip right into meditation with your hands on your lap. The translation here is, he is the perfectly enlightened one, a worthy one, a rightly self-awakened one. Okay, so you guys have seen that before. Now we go into a, a little bit more meaning. Consummate in knowledge. Consummate means like high degree, showing a high degree of knowledge or wisdom. When you see knowledge, this is really wisdom in the Buddhist teaching. So it's kind of acknowledging that the Buddha is a Buddha. He's rightly self-awakened. He's got, she shows this high degree of knowledge and conduct, the moral conduct, right? Wisdom and conduct. One who has gone the good way, right? He's no longer in the darkness. He's in the light. He's practicing very well. He's gone the good way. Knower of the worlds. This is the five realms, the heavenly realm, human realm, animal realm, afflicted spirits, and the hell realm. So a Buddha would understand 
these five realms. So he's the knower of the worlds. And a Buddha will oftentimes even have recollection of their existences in these other realms as well as part of their self-awakening. That's how they discovered that these realms actually exist because they start to have residual memories of their past lives in these other realms. And that's how they know they actually exist. He's the knower of the worlds. Unexcelled trainer of those who can be taught. So what a Buddha is, is he's a trainer of human beings. He's training human beings how to be better human beings. And he can only teach those who can be taught. Another way of saying this is those who choose to be taught. You guys have heard me talk about how you can't force somebody to attain enlightenment. They have to choose to learn the teachings. They have to choose to reflect on them. They have to choose to practice them. They have to choose to meditate and do all the things. There's millions of decisions that you make along this path to take the mind closer and closer to enlightenment. So a Buddha is only going to teach those who choose to be taught. They're not going to manipulate or force or try to convince people to learn their teachings in manipulative and backhanded ways with guilt, shame, or fear because their whole goal in helping people to get to enlightenment is to eliminate guilt, shame, and fear among other aspects of the mind. So a Buddha isn't going to put guilt, shame, and fear into people's minds in order to manipulate someone to learn his teachings, but instead he's going to make himself available to those people who can be taught, those people who choose to be taught. And once they choose to be taught, he's an unexcelled trainer, able to fully teach people in a very easy and straightforward way because his wisdom is so deep and so profound. A Buddha is a teacher of all humans and divine beings, or another way to say that is heavenly beings, because those are the two realms that beings can actually attain enlightenment. The three lower realms, hell, afflicted spirits, and animal realm, they're not able to attain enlightenment in those realms. They would need to work their way through those realms, ultimately getting to either a human birth or a birth as a heavenly being to actually attain enlightenment. And it's those two realms that can attain enlightenment. And we say that he's the teacher of humans, of course, because he taught many, many humans during his lifetime. But there's also depictions in the Pali Canon during the Buddha's lifetime how at nighttime when he was asleep or he was in meditation, how heavenly beings would actually come and kind of there would be this aura or this light that would come down from the sky and they would be requesting teachings from him during his lifetime. So that's why we refer to him as the teacher of humans and divine beings. Awakened and perfectly enlightened, right? So just kind of acknowledging once again that he's awakened to enlightenment, he's perfectly enlightened. His enlightenment is untainted and uninfluenced by any outside influence. That's why he's perfectly enlightened, because he did this on his own, right? So those are the translations. Now, where the breath is, is as you progress these first two phrases, there's only one breath, like the previous chants. But the third phrase, there's actually two places where I will typically breathe, and I will let you guys know where those are. And in these breaths that I'm sharing with you, they're not like 
everybody has to do it this way. It's more like guidance and suggesting to you. I mean, if you've got the lung capacity to take a deep breath and chant all the way through, then go for it. That's up to you. But if you're interested in taking a breath, the places where I'm identifying tends to be a good place to take a breath. But you do what feels comfortable for you. Hear this first phrase. Iti piso mahakawa. That's where you take your breath. Arahang samasamhoto. And now leading into the next phrase, you're going to take a breath there. We cha charanang samhono. Right there. Nice breath. Anuteropurisa. Little quarter breath, half breath here. Dama sati satatawa manusanang. And now a breath here to kind of finish it out. Now I kind of drag out that last syllable, but some Thai people say, oh, no, 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 you're supposed to be you know, they just kind of thee, but I kind of like to drag it out. It kind of just sounds really beautiful for me. So I drag it out. So up to you if you would like to do that or not. Uh, you'll hear people doing it different ways because there's no permanent way to do this. That's why each temple will have a slightly different way. Each country will have a little bit different dialect. And typically students will tend to chant the same way as their teacher because they're showing up to the same classes all the time and they just kind of blend along with the community. So one particular temple will tend to chant one way. Another temple will chant a slightly different way. And here in Thailand, they will actually have certain periods of time during the year well, temples will get together and they will chant and kind of share their chants with each other. So let's do this together as a group. And we'll do the same thing where I'll cue the breath the first time through. And then we'll do it two more times without cueing the breath. So there's no bowing or gesturing at the end of each phrase. You just continue through all the way through. So bring your hands together, palm to palm. Take a nice deep breath. Iti piso mahakawa. Breath. Arahang samasamhoto. Breath. Vichacharanang samhono. Breath. Breath. Anuteropurisa. Little quarter breath. Damasati Breath. Okay, now let's do that one two more times with you knowing where to cue the breath now. Okay, nice deep breath. 
iti piso makawa arahang samasamoto wicacara ng samuno sakatoro kawito Ano pero purisa nama sati sata tawa manusan puto pagwati. Do that one again. Iti piso makawa arahang samasamoto wicacara ng samuno sakatoro kawito Ano pero purisa nama sati sata tawa manusan puto pagwati. Okay, if you notice how we just kind of take our time. Oh, we forgot our clap. Clap, 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 clap. If you notice, we just take our time through these chants, right? We just kind of take our time. We're not rushed. We're not hurried. We're not trying to show off to anybody. This is what kind of helps to ease the mind into meditation, that you're just kind of taking your time, getting aware of the breath, aware of the mind, just taking your time to kind of ease into the meditation. And then when you're done with meditation, it helps you to kind of ease back out into your life and kind of what you're going to be doing after meditation. So it's kind of a nice way, that nice little buffer before and after meditation. Do you guys have any questions on this chant? There are no particular questions on this chant, but we do have some general questions. Okay, let's do all three together as one swipe through so that we can kind of get in the feeling of doing the whole set because in our subsequent sessions, I'll probably do a little bit of review of these and answer questions, but what we're probably going to do is we're just going to do our chanting, we'll go into breathing mindfulness meditation, we'll go into loving kindness meditation, we'll do breathing mindfulness after that, and then we'll come out with chanting. So we'll put it all together in our part two, three, or four, we'll kind of build up to that where we just have our whole practice developed with chanting, breathing mindfulness, loving kindness, breathing mindfulness, and chanting again. So let's go back to the very first chant and James and I will flip the slides as we go just through this chant once, the next chant once, and then the ETP so once. Okay, so you guys get a feeling of what that's like. You knowing where to breathe on your own. Okay, so palms together, nice deep breath. Arahang samasamoto makawa 
Lots of effort today. All right, so that's the chance I share as part of this practice. And you can practice those before and after each session of meditation. And over time, you'll get better and better at this. And for those of you guys that would like it, as we do subsequent sessions, not only will we use this to ease into meditation, but I also do some personal coaching, if you'd like, where you can actually display your chanting for us. We'll turn on the microphone and you guys can actually do some chanting and I'll kind of help you in class so other people can hear the hard work that you're doing with your chanting. So if you work on this between now and the coming Wednesdays, you'll get a chance to get some help to improve your practice more and more and more. So with that, I'll just turn things over to you guys because it sounds like you have some questions outside of chanting, maybe on meditation or the Four Noble Truths or anything that we're learning as part of this path you're welcome to ask those questions. We have a question on YouTube from IA asking, is Master Gautama Buddha's history important? 
I think it's important in regards to understanding his journey and maybe kind of extracting anything from his journey that will help you in your practice. Knowing his story isn't going to help you become you know, more and more enlightened. It's not going to train the mind in things like the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, meditation, all these core teachings that you need in order to progress on the path. But there are certainly things during his lifetime that he did that certainly helps you to understand the teachings, like knowing that he was a prince and that he basically had this life of luxury and excess. And his mind was still discontent. He was, of course, very wealthy. Him and his family were a royal family. And wealth does not lead to a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind, or else he would have never left the royal palace. Because oftentimes we're taught that wealth and money and fame and fortune is the goal of this life. But the Buddhist story, you can see that, well, he had all that stuff, but his mind was still very discontent. Then as he progressed in his life, he was married. He had a child. There's people who tell you that if you're married and have a child that you can't attain enlightenment, which isn't true. He had a marriage and he had a child. Also, the Four observations when he came out of the palace and he observed a sick person, an aging person, a dead corpse, and an aesthetic or a roaming monk, so to speak. This was a motivating factor for him to progress and decide to actually undertake this journey to enlightenment because of the sickness, aging, and death in the kingdom. And he was interested to understand this and what caused it. And he decided to go become a homeless roaming aesthetic. And this factors into what he ultimately discovered about the cycle of rebirth. Then when he left the palace, he cuts off his hair. He lets go of his prized possession, his horse. He lets his attendant go and he goes off into homelessness. And when they first started teaching him, they started teaching him to disparage the body and harm the body, hanging himself upside down from trees, laying on a bed of nails, doing, you know, starving themselves, all these really grotesque teachings and practices to today's standard, which ultimately he discovered didn't lead to enlightenment because he did these things for two years. And he progressed with one teacher from being a student to being a teacher of that teacher's teachings. And he said that when he did that, that that teacher's teachings, even though he had become a teacher in a very short time frame of that teacher's teachings, his mind was still discontent. So then he went to another teacher and he went from student all the way to teacher. And he taught that teacher's teachings for a period of time. And that teacher made him a teacher. And the Buddha said that his mind was still discontent. And that's why he went off on his own. And ultimately, he brought us the teachings that lead to enlightenment. So there's some lessons learned along the way in that part of his life. And then also afterwards, when he started teaching, the very first teaching, the very first discourse was the Four Noble Truths to establish right view. And this is why I start out the book and I start out all the students that I teach with the Four Noble Truths, right view, because without right view, you wouldn't be able to understand any of the rest of the teachings of the Buddha, because that's where you learn the Four Noble Truths and accepting responsibility for your feelings and your emotions. If you truly believed that other people caused you to be angry, then why would you ever invest any time and effort to train your mind? 
So it's establishing right view through the Four Noble Truths that basically lays the foundation for the rest of the path to enlightenment. So there's things like that, even after you attain enlightenment, that helps us to see you know, what we can do now in present time to journey on this path and actually attain enlightenment. So from that standpoint, I think, yes, it is important. But in terms of how to actively train your mind, just knowing his story by itself isn't going to necessarily train your mind to get to this peaceful, calm, serene, and consent mind with joy. But the lessons learned there that you extrapolate certainly can. So it sounds, David, that you know, we can take lessons from the Buddha's life, but what's really important is the teachings that he shared relative to his actual life. Yes. And another thing to keep in mind in relationship to his life story is don't try to emulate the Buddha, right? Maybe try to emulate his wisdom or his moral conduct or his mental discipline. But oftentimes people moving from a Christian background into Buddhist teachings in Christianity, people are taught to emulate Jesus Christ and to become like Jesus Christ, essentially, kind of model your entire life after Jesus Christ. So this is where I feel a lot of people think that in order to attain enlightenment, you have to leave your family, you have to ordain, you have to completely you know, shun the whole world. That's not entirely what the Buddha did, and that's certainly not what he taught. That's what he did, is he stepped away from his family for a period of time but ultimately he comes back to his family and he still remains as a homeless roaming aesthetic. He didn't live in the palace, but his son ordained with him, his wife ordained with him, his mom, his stepmom ordained with him. You know, his father came and saw him, his cousins ordained with him. So, you know, this whole notion that we have to give up our family, we have to walk away from all of our relationships, we have to go live in a temple or deen, and that's the only way to attain enlightenment, or you're somehow going to be more enlightened if you attain enlightenment through the ordained path. These are all not actually correct. You don't have to ordain. People who ordain, they still have to struggle through many challenges to attain enlightenment. But household practitioners can attain enlightenment too. And in fact, I would say that a household practitioner actually has to struggle even more to attain enlightenment because they are maintaining careers in a household, in children, and all of those things. There's so much more to learn in the household life in order to attain enlightenment. Even the Buddha talked about how much more difficult it is to attain enlightenment in the household life. He admitted it himself, how much more difficult it is. So don't think that this extrapolation of the lessons of Gautama Buddha's teachings into your life and using measure life means you have to emulate his life. You can maintain being a household practitioner if you like and still attain enlightenment, or you can go ordain for a few years, five years, 10 years, what have you, and ordain for the rest of your life, or you can ordain for a few years and then unordain and go back into the household life too. That's completely normal as part of the Buddhist tradition. There's no cookie cutter that says, okay, if you do exactly what the Buddha did, you are going to attain enlightenment. So it's important that you extrapolate the lessons learned, but don't try to necessarily emulate every last little thing that he did, because that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to attain enlightenment because like for example for me like if i were to leave 
this family and go ordain, I know that my wife would really struggle to raise a son by herself here in terms of her ability to support him financially, emotionally, take him back and forth to school, teach him all the lessons that he needs to learn. She would really struggle to have to raise this boy by himself. And then thus he would struggle too because he wouldn't have the help and the guidance that he needs in order to progress in his life. So by me maintaining the household lifestyle, I can help my wife, I can help our son, but I can also teach and I can share these teachings into the world to help other people. So to me, it's kind of like living a bit of a monk's lifestyle where I get to focus fully on the Buddhist teachings and teaching the Buddhist teachings and sharing the Buddhist teachings, but I also get to share them into the household with my wife and my son, and I get to move about the community in a way that ordained practitioners can't, and I get to go in and out of situations and settings and help people in certain settings that ordained practitioners wouldn't be able to. So it's almost like I'm kind of like an undercover monk in some situations when I go into different settings. People don't necessarily realize or connect right away that I'm a teacher of the Dhamma or a teacher of the Buddhist teachings. So there's a lot to be learned in the household life. And I don't necessarily suggest that somebody give that up just because they aspire to become a monk because becoming a monk doesn't mean all your problems go away. There's enormous amount of struggle in that lifestyle as well. But you can attain enlightenment in both lifestyles. Would you say that living the lifestyle of the household practitioner also shows us a lot of lessons that one who may not be in that lifestyle may not see? Yeah, exactly. There's uh, a lot to learn about how to apply these teachings in a household lifestyle. There's monks, for example, who ordained when they, or, or you know, they became a novice when they were eight or 12 years old, and they've lived in a temple their whole life, and now maybe they're 30, 40, 50 years old. Maybe they've never had a girlfriend. They've never had a wife. They've never had a home. They never had a career. So when household practitioners come to them and ask guidance, they're, you know, maybe somewhat limited about what they can share because they've never actually experienced applying these teachings in a business setting or with a child or with a family or how do you teach your child? How do you share these teachings with a uh, life partner who isn't interested in learning these teachings? Or, you know, how do you navigate a relationship of having love for your partner but not be attached to them and also not having sex with a partner. Like eventually my wife and I, we decided to let go of our sexual relationship and not continue with that. And, you know, how do you do that? You know, a person who's been living in a temple since eight or 12 years old wouldn't necessarily know that. They'll know other things. They can help a lot of ordained practitioners to ordain and become a really good uh, monk, for example. So they have that wisdom but they wouldn't necessarily have other types of wisdom. So I think that practitioners living in a household life, while it's more challenging in a lot of regards, that challenge turns into a whole lot of wisdom because you have a lot more to overcome in order to attain enlightenment in the household life. So because the challenges and struggles are going to be more significant and you have to overcome those, that means ultimately when you get to enlightenment, your wisdom is going to be much more profound having lived in a household life and actually attained enlightenment through that lifestyle. Thank you, David. I'll turn it over to Basim now. Okay. Um, Holly has a question. She says, 
How important is the pronunciation as we are learning? The Pali language, if you learn the pronunciation, the more that you practice it, it'll get more and more accurate. And that's something I can help you with privately, Holly, or in these group sessions, uh, or you know, you listening to me in the audio while you're doing it, you'll get it more and more clear. But when you first start, you know, it's just like everything else. When you learned your ABCs, you couldn't pronounce those properly either. So it's gonna take you a number of months to ramp up with this. When James and others first started learning these chants, I noticed like about the two or three month mark, they started really being able to kind of pronounce them fairly decent. By the six month mark, they were really well refined in the way that they were chanting them, but they also sought help and guidance to refine their pronunciation. So in a matter of months, I think most people can probably learn these pretty readily if you get dedicated with it. And it will really help you to pronounce them properly, not really properly, because there's not really a right or wrong necessarily, but if you pronounce them in the way that I'm pronouncing them, I'm chanting in what we would call a very Thai way. If you heard someone from Sri Lanka chant these, they would chant them differently. Same, you would hear the same, but there'd be a little bit different dialect, for example. But the way that I chant, it's very Thai because the audio that I've heard is from Thai because I'm around Thai people and I hear them chanting. So I just emulated what I heard them chanting. So if you learn to chant the way that I chant, it'll be a very Thai way of chanting. And the way that we pronounce these Pali words is a very Thai way. And I'm using the English characters there to represent the Pali script. We use the English characters to try to represent the Pali words. But if you were to learn these same chants in Thai, they would actually use their script in order to write them out. And then I've taken what I've heard from Thai people and I've laid it down in an English representation with English characters. So that's what you've got to learn with. And you've got the audio from me as well. So if you learn how to pronounce them and pay attention to it, it can help you develop that concentration, that memory, that awareness of mind. And ultimately, that's what is going to benefit you on the path. Okay, uh, Manuel has a question. So let's go to Manuel. Hi, Teacher David. I had a question about the chanting as well. Uh, and you mentioned um, Thai children often began to learn uh, at a very early age, how to uh, how to chant. Um, so, growing up, I had a similar experience with being um, just taught, uh, you know, Sanskrit and Hindu chants and prayers. Though I never knew the meaning of those, um, you know, we just followed along whenever we prayed. So, in regards to the, the chants that we're learning here. If we never knew the meaning of the chants, would we still effectively be conditioning our mind for, uh, you know, before meditation and after meditation? If we never understood the meaning of the chants, and then again, as for my example, whenever I chanted and prayed in Sanskrit, I did have a sense of um, this evoking a sense of reverence. Um, and uh, uh, a deep sense of, uh, you know, prayer was there, but I never understood the meaning. I, I am beginning to understand the meaning of the chants that you're teaching, and I do appreciate that greatly. 
But if, let's say, no one, you know, a person didn't understand the meaning ever, would there still be a benefit from it? I think so, because there's still awareness of mind, still some concentration in order to memorize them and building up the memory. There's still awareness of the breath, so there's still some benefit there. I like to teach the translations because, as you're noting, is I think it really adds something to it, that if you really know what you're saying and you can put your intention behind that, then it takes on some real meaning in your practice, that it's not just empty words that you're saying, but you really know, you know what you're saying. So I like to teach the translations with it because it adds something to your chanting and puts some more emphasis behind your intention in chanting. But there would still be some benefit if you didn't know what they actually mean in terms of the awareness of mind, concentration, memory, easing the mind in, becoming aware of the breath, and so forth. Okay, thanks, teacher. No more questions for now. Okay. Well, it looks like we've come to the end of our questions for today's class. This is a very fun, interactive type of thing that you can do, very different than what we've been learning so far on this path with all the various teachings from the Buddha. If you chant these and you get really proficient at it, you really enjoy it and you would like to learn more, there's plenty more chants that you can learn. Lots and lots of chanting that you can learn. There's actually certain temples that just specialize in chanting and you can actually go there and learn this. So if you tend to enjoy this aspect of practice, there's a lot more for you to learn here. But these are the only three that I chant and I've only ever used these three. And as I said, if you chant these for a few weeks or a few months and you're like, eh, it's not really my thing. I don't know that I really feel that I would enjoy doing this or continuing to do this, then, you know, this isn't something that you have to do. But I still suggest that you try to get started and to know whether you like it or not. Because remember, this path isn't about everybody doing everything exactly the same. It's about you independently discovering the truth for yourself. So if you chant these for a few weeks or a few months and you realize it's helpful and it's beneficial and you would like to use it, then great, then use it. But if it's not really something that you feel warm to or something that you feel is enhancing your practice, then leave it off. But just be sure that you still cultivate those other benefits that I mentioned in terms of how I use chanting. Just be sure you're incorporating something in your life that you're developing awareness of mind, concentration, memory, that you're setting up mindfulness in front of you, that you're easing the mind in the meditation, that you're developing this respect and gratitude for the elders and for Gautama Buddha. And then just always know that whatever you're doing, there is no magical, mystical, special thing that's going to instantly create some kind of benefit for you. If that existed, all of humanity would already know it by now, right? If there was just like one magic phrase that we could all say that just would instantly create amazing benefit in our life, we would know that by now. We would all be doing it and we would all have perfectly wonderful lives. But the way that you know that these chants aren't what they say they are is because if somebody says, okay, if you chant this chant and you'll get extra long life, well, if you go to that community, there should be people that are 150, 200 years old sitting around. Well, you look around you and there's nobody that's 150 or 200 years old. Or if they say, okay, you chant this chant and you're immediately going to attain enlightenment over the next couple of years. Okay, well, where are all those people that have attained enlightenment that way? 
or you know if you chant these chants all your unwholesome gamma will be eliminated okay so you've been chanting these for 10 years what's the last unwholesome thing that's happened to you you know what's the last you know thing that you've encountered right so you can see just through reflecting on this that if people kind of say that there's this mystical magical benefit you can put that under a test and you can look to see that it's really not true that what the buddha's path is really all about is training this mind getting rid of that conditioning and getting to this unconditioned peaceful calm serene and content mind with joy where there's no longer any discontent feelings whatsoever and there's no magical mystical way to make that happen you know we tend to in modern times like to look for that magic pill right or that magical thing that's just going to instantly take away all the work all the effort you know all of that you know we don't need to do that we can just do this simple little thing and there's no work there's no effort we just do this little thing and while William, our life is perfect well that doesn't exist you have to gradually work to learn reflect and practice the teachings changing and improving the condition of the mind gaining this wisdom improving your moral conduct and increasing your mental discipline and as you do that gradually over time you will make wiser and wiser decisions and your life will become better and better and the condition of your mind will become better and better because you won't be reacting in situations you'll be responding to situations through this wisdom and that's the way to improve the condition of the mind and improve the condition of your life so next sunday this sunday coming up we're going to be in chapter five exploring that entire eightfold path from right view all the way to right concentration we're going to go through that in one class session if you were participating in this program last month I went through the AFL path in three separate classes and really dove into it in a lot of detail. But now, since we're just going to cover chapter five in one class, we'll kind of still go through it and it'll be a nice refresher for anybody who has been part of those previous classes. But if you're just starting with us, it'll be a good chance for you to learn the AFL path because this is the path to enlightenment. And if you read the chapter beforehand, it helps because then you can ask questions and get clarification in the class. And you may even choose to read it afterwards. And remember, there's an audio book, too, so you can even listen to the audio book as well. And in that class next Sunday, I'll go through the AFL path and help you see how this is your life practice. The title of this book is Developing Your Life Practice. Well, the Eightfold Path is your life practice. It's the core component of this path to enlightenment. And without deeply understanding it and practicing it, you wouldn't be able to actually attain enlightenment in the Buddhist teaching. So it's a very important class that you either attend or listen on a playback if you can't attend Sunday for some reason or another. And then next Wednesday, we'll just kind of refresh the Buddhist chanting, kind of go through it again. And if you practice between now and then, then you'll have some more proficiency with the chance next week by the time we get in the next week and we'll probably be able to spend some of this time actually doing meditation on our subsequent wednesdays as well putting all this together so i'll see you either on sunday or wednesday and for those of you guys that participate in the poly canon in english program i will see you on saturday as well so until then have a lovely rest of your day take care and be well
สวัสดีครับ Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit Patreon.com/forward/slash/supportBuddha. To access more teachings, visit BuddhaDailyWisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment. <laughs>